an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Two or three weeks ago, uh, our Lutheran pastor uh, suddenly said, faith is not reasonable, faith is ridiculous. He was commenting on that story uh, in the gospel about the unfaithful servant who had been skimming off the top and whose boss had caught him at it and told him he was going to be fired, but he had to bring in a, an up-to-date account of the books. And um, he went to all the people who owed money and he said, how much do you owe? And if they said 100, he'd say, well, change that and write down 80 or change that and write down 50. And we read uh, this strange word in Luke 16. His master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly for the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the children of light. Uh, there was a certain rationality at work, uh, a cost-benefit analysis, uh, a maximized profit analysis. Um, he was hoping that when he was out of a job, he would have made friends who would invite him into their home, the gospel tells us. Uh, and then Jesus commends the unfaithful servant. I tell you, he says, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth. Mammon is the Greek there. So that when it is gone, they may welcome you into their eternal homes. And that one reference to eternity makes it clear that Jesus' commendation is um, ironic. Uh, here's this wisdom which, uh, uh, from a certain point of view, is uh, a real asset. You'll, you'll, you'll survive if you've got this kind of know-how and can practice this kind of wisdom. And Jesus says, in effect, with his ironical comment, uh, it's utter foolishness when you uh, look at it from the light of eternity. Now, what I suspect is that Jesus has been reading the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians. I'm just checking to see if anybody's awake. <laughs> sounded like a few of you haven't quite dozed off yet. Um, in the early chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul does the same sort of thing. He says there's a wisdom of the world, there's the wisdom of the wise. And relative to that wisdom, the word of the cross, the logos of the cross is foolishness. But that foolishness is the wisdom of God. And that wisdom is a higher wisdom than any wisdom of the world. Um, two biblical examples, now one from Shakespeare. I'm working my way up. <coughs> uh, very early on in uh, Hamlet, uh, Claudius, the, the new king who has killed Hamlet's father and married his mother in unseemly haste, is upset by Hamlet's melancholy. And he refers to it as his absurd melancholy. And from his point of view, um, it is absurd. Uh, it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, Hamlet is still the heir to the throne. Hamlet still has all the privileges of a prince of Denmark. 
Hamlet has this beautiful young girl as his girlfriend, Ophelia. Why all this long dog-faced melancholy? Now Hamlet has not yet said that something is rotten in the state of Denmark, but he's feeling it already. He doesn't know what's rotten, quite. He thinks his mother married in unseemly haste, but he doesn't know yet that uh, she and his uncle had conspired to murder his father in order to share the crown. Uh, by the time all of that comes to light, the absurd melancholy, and I picked the word absurd, of course, advisedly because it's going to be an important word for Kierkegaard. Um, the absurd melancholy turns out to be more in tune with reality than the glib uh, happiness of uh, Claudius and uh, the attempt to uh, carry that out on the part of uh, Gertrude, his mother, uh, who's not quite as, as good at, uh, at bluffing. Uh, she's more uncomfortable about the, his situation. But we have in these three instances, the, the Jesus situation, the Paul situation, and uh, the Shakespeare situation, um, is this. Uh, if you're standing here, this looks reasonable and that looks absurd. But if you're standing here, things can be reversed. What from over here looks reasonable looks to be foolishness, and what from over here looks to be absurd turns out to be a certain kind of wisdom. The relativity of the reasonable and of the absurd. And um, I'll get to Kierkegaard in a moment, and I, I want to uh, mention the fact that just shortly after he wrote Fear and Trembling, just a matter of months, he preached a sermon uh, in Trinity Church um, in Copenhagen on uh, this text from uh, the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians. Yet among the mature we speak wisdom, though it is not the wisdom of this age who are doomed to perish. Uh, the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish. But we speak God's wisdom, secret and hidden, which God decreed before the ages of glory. Uh, there again, you get that Pauline take on the relativity of what's wisdom, the relativity of what counts as reasonable. Um, so it, it isn't immediately obvious what reason uh, should signify. And what some people see as reasonable from another point of view, will be entirely uh, unreasonable. Now Kierkegaard was a Lutheran. Couldn't help it, I mean, he was born in Denmark, he wasn't a Jew. Um, he satirizes this way of becoming a Lutheran um, uh, in some of his writings. But um, Luther has this same sense that reason, or what's called reason, can be very, very different things. And uh, how one looks at it um, depends on, on which of the things it is and where you stand. Sometimes, not very often, sometimes Luther speaks positively about reason. For example, uh, after citing a number of passages from Luther, uh, Paul Althaus, one of the best German Luther scholars, uh, writes as follows. Uh, 
<clears throat> for Luther, reason is the source and bearer of all culture. It deserves all, it uh, discovered all the arts and sciences, all medicine and law, and it administers them. Reason makes itself felt wherever wisdom, power, industry are found among men in this life. None of this is to be despised, rather it is to be regarded and praised as a noble gift of God. Now you may have noticed that all of that had to do with what we might call secular domains of human life. But on occasion, Luther speaks affirmatively about reason in the religious domain. For example, um, when he's speaking about those who are under the sway of the devil, he says, they do not permit themselves to be instructed. They do not listen to reason. They do not admit scripture. And their reason and scripture are in a partnership. And in a more famous uh, statement, before the Diet of Worms, where he's alleged to have said, here I stand, I can do no other, but probably didn't say that. He uh, almost certainly did say, unless I am convinced by the testimony of scripture or clear reason, I am bound by the scripture, uh, which scriptures which I have quoted in my you know, conscience is captive to the word of God. And there once again, um, the Luther who appeals to scripture uh, designates reason as the ally of scripture. Most of the time when Luther talks about reason, he says nasty things about it. In fact, the only other subject about which he speaks as nastily is the Pope. <coughs> but uh, so here's some of the things he says about reason. It's the ally of the flesh and the devil. Um, it's mere human and opin opinion and traditions. It's the presumption that it can invent um, moral and religious um, practices, which he calls self-chosen works and worship. That is, both in ethics and religion, reason invents its own way um, and says this is uh, how we should go. <clears throat> He says that without uh, the um, ministry of the Holy Spirit and of faith, reason is bound to lead to error. It needs illumination by faith. It's both too feeble and too fallen to be trusted all by itself. Uh, it's unable to grasp uh, sin and mercy and grace, uh, the themes that are at the very heart of the gospel um, as he understands it. Um, it doesn't grasp the difference between active and passive righteousness, which again is so fundamental to him. Um, uh, he says that the root of the problem of reason that he's been castigating in this way is its pride. He says reason isn't to be abolished, but its prideful use is to be abolished. The claim that reason can be sufficient unto itself apart from revelation, apart from faith, apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, um, and so forth. And so he, he uses three terms. See, he's been reading Kierkegaard, just as Jesus has been reading Paul. And he uses three terms that are absolutely fundamental to Kierkegaard's comments about reason. When he's speaking 
in a negative tone of voice, uh, as he most often is. Uh, the three terms are paradox, absurd, and offense. Relative to self-sufficient reason, relative to what he sometimes calls human understanding or worldly understanding, the gospel is a paradox. It doesn't make sense. It's absurd. Um, he also uses the term madness, uh, as if he's been reading Shakespeare. Um, and it's offensive. Uh, one from the standpoint of what all too often passes as reason, um, uh, the word of the cross is offensive. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who are not offended in me. Now I want to turn uh, attention specifically to um, Kierkegaard and to his reflections on the relationship of reason to faith, um, particularly in fear and trembling. And uh, two preliminary uh, comments. Uh, Kierkegaard pleaded that we not attribute to him the writings of the pseudonyms under which he often wrote. And uh, in my scholarly work, I try to uh, follow that advice and uh, refer to the pseudonyms. But today I'm going to say, Kierkegaard tells us this, Kierkegaard tells us that. And I want you to understand that by that, I, I'm not making any claim to be reporting of what the historical Kierkegaard actually believed. I think what we're talking about will be very close to what he believed, but that's not the point. The point is he created characters, pseudonyms, to present some ideas to us that he wants us to think about. And he doesn't want to get his reputation as an author, whether it's favorable or unfavorable, to stand in the way. And so he puts these pseudonyms between himself and us, but he's the one who presents these ideas to us and says, what do you make of this? He challenges us to come to grips with uh, these ideas in much the same way as a novelist uh, presents to us uh, different modes of thinking and different modes of being in the world by creating characters and presenting them to us. What do you make of this guy? What do you make of this gal? Uh, is, is this how we ought to be living our life? Um, and uh, th that indirectness um, challenging us to respond to the character rather than than a, a didactic approach in which the novelist would say, oh, here, here's the good guys and here are the bad guys. Um, you know, in, in the Westerns, Western movies, the good guys wear white hats and the bad guys wear black hats. Uh, they're, they're not quite as subtle um, as sometimes. Well, that, that's the first thing. So my apologies for simply saying Kierkegaard when uh, it's really the pseudonyms who are the authors. Um, secondly, um, as I've already indicated, reason can signify several different things. For example, um, when Aristotle defines human beings as rational animals, reason signifies what it is that distinguishes us from the other animals. Um, but there's a long history um, in the West in which reason has a different meaning from that. And it's the context in which the relationship between reason and faith is discussed. Um, and uh, in almost uh, perfect uh, parallel with that, philosophy and theology. And uh, 
reason and philosophy refers in that context, and that's the context we'll be working with, um, to um, the use of the human intellect unaided by and uninformed by divine revelation. Um, scripture and the traditions that come out of Scripture and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the testimony of the church, all of those very particular historical um, sources of, of potential knowledge um, are canceled out and reason, uh, the human intellect unaided by those uh, is what counts as reason and philosophy presumably is supposed to work in that way. On the other hand, there are those ways of thinking um, in which precisely those modes of assistance are drawn upon and trusted and used and faith is the name for that and theology is the discipline. So when, when one is talking about faith and reason, um, in the first instance reason signifies the unaided use of the human intellect uh, without dependence upon divine revelation. Now in the Enlightenment period, which comes just before um, Kierkegaard comes on the scene, the appeal to reason uh, had as one of its strongest arguments um, that faith was too pluralistic. Faith was too particular. There was Judaism and Christianity and Islam. There were Protestants and Catholics. Um, and as the history of that period showed all too clearly, um, there were religious wars and intolerance and persecution and inquisition, a whole lot of religious violence uh, and prejudice. Um, and reason was supposed to be universal. Reason is a faculty that all people uh, in all times and all places have available to them. Reason was supposed to be ahistorical. And in that sense, a religion which was made to conform to reason would be a universal religion and would eliminate the sources of religious violence and intolerance and persecution. Well, it didn't turn out quite the way the Enlightenment had hoped. The project that bears the name of one of Kant's books, Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone, had as its best 17th century, in my judgment, its best 17th century uh, example, Spinoza, and its best 18th century example uh, in Kant, and its best 19th century example in Hegel. Each of them purported to be the voice of universal reason. And the problem is that each of those three views and each of the interpretations of religion that they offer on the basis of either their metaphysics or their moral philosophy, each is incompatible with the other two. They begin to look like Jew and Christian and Muslim. And the differences among them seem to be at least as great as those, or Protestant, Catholic, and Jew, as Will Herberg described the religious scene in the United States back in when, the 50s or 60s? Um, so the promise of reason to be universal 
um, is um, a, a promise that um, uh, shows itself to be un unkept uh, by Enlightenment thinkers. Now, when we, when we turn our attention to fear and trembling, um, Kierkegaard is already thinking about reason in this pluralistic way. That is to say, he's already a Hegelian. And unlike his ahistorical predecessors in the 17th and 18th century, Hegel understands that human reason is historically embedded and comes in a variety of different forms. He thinks he can um, give us a totality of all these forms that would be the universal reason, but it's going to have a historical character to it. And uh, Kierkegaard and other thinkers uh, after Hegel weren't so sure that that uh, all-inclusive totality was available to us. That would presuppose that history had come to an end and that there were no further developments uh, to happen um, uh, and so forth. So in Fear and Trembling, um, Kierkegaard contrasts faith with two particular versions of reason. Um, and I emphasize that they're particular because um, just to the degree that they do not show themselves to be universal, the question can be posed to them just as it can be posed to the particularity of religious tradition. Um, why should we buy into this rather than something else? Now, that's a very difficult question to answer in a context of religious pluralism. My point, and Kierkegaard's point, is that it's just as difficult a question to answer when it occurs in a context of philosophical pluralism. Uh, insofar as all of our thinking is historically conditioned and particular and uh, in conflict with other interpretations, whether they are flying the flag of reason or flying the flag of faith, um, it doesn't look as if there's some neutral standpoint from which one can adjudicate the differences and uh, one is in a difficult situation. Well, the first, the first contrast that uh, Kierkegaard makes in Fear and Trembling is between Abraham as the knight of faith and the knight of infinite resignation. He takes the story from uh, Genesis 22 of Abraham's almost sacrifice of Isaac. God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice Isaac. Um, and what we have is what in American law would be a full-fledged conspiracy. Uh, conspiracy involves an agreement between at least two parties and an action on the part of at least one of them towards that end. So if you and I agree to rob a bank and you go in and case the joint, uh, we're guilty of a conspiracy to rob the bank. Now Abraham and God have this agreement that he's supposed to go and sacrifice Isaac. And then Abraham packs up his mule and takes Isaac along and they travel for three days to get to Mount Moriah. And he builds an altar and he, he, starts the, he puts the wood on for the fire. Uh, he's committed himself to doing this and 
you know the story at the last minute. Um, God says, no, don't go through with it. Um, but that doesn't take Abraham off the hook. It doesn't take God off the hook. God commanded Abraham to do that, though he revoked it eventually. And Abraham was willing to do so and willing to take some very concrete steps in that direction. So with that story in the background, Kierkegaard says, um, one can imagine that Abraham was just a knight of infinite resignation. The knight of infinite resignation is somebody who's willing to sacrifice uh, what's dearest to them uh, for something that's higher. Um, take a, an example that isn't particularly religiously significant. Some young person who is musically gifted and has opening before him or her uh, a stunning career as a concert pianist uh, or a concert violinist um, or as an operatic singer um, has already broken into the world-class uh, level of performance and then decides that the higher calling is to stay at home and take care of an invalid parent or perhaps an autistic child. Um, the Knight of Infinite Resignation does this, gives up the dearest for the sake of something higher and does so without resentment, does so without hostility. Is that who Abraham is? Uh, no. <laughs> he's that, but he's something else. Um, uh, the story, at least as Kierkegaard understands it, has Abraham willing to sacrifice Isaac, um, and he's doing so without resentment and without hostility toward God. Uh, we, we don't find from Abraham the kind of, of uh, diatribes you get from Job. Hey, God, uh, I'm issuing some subpoenas. You'd better show up and explain yourself. Don't get any of that uh, from Abraham. Um, what is it that distinguishes Abraham as the knight of faith from the knight of infinite resignation? Abraham believes that he will get Isaac back in this life. Even if necessary by means of resurrection. Now this is Kierkegaard's gloss on the story, obviously. Um, he's using the story to make his philosophical points. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's not just that he believes he will get Abraham back in the life to come. It's not at all clear that Abraham had a belief in the life to come. Um, uh, and it's not just that Abraham thinks that, well, God is testing me, but in the final analysis, he'll back off. That's what actually happened in the story, but um, on Kierkegaard's telling, Abraham believed that he would get uh, Isaac back, even if that required a resurrection. So here's the difference between faith and reason. For faith, for God, all things are possible. For reason, that is to say, for the night of infinite resignation, that's not the case. And so the night of infinite resignation gives up the dearest for something higher, but without any hope, uh, in, in total despair, because there is no God on the scene 
who could bring Isaac back even if that required a resurrection. In other words, the night of infinite resignation operates in a metaphysical framework of what today we would call scientific naturalism. A world in which there is no God who is an agent. Uh, a world in which there is no God who performs what are commonly called miracles. Um, from, the, from the point of view of scientific naturalism, Abraham's faith is foolishness, it's absurd. And Kierkegaard says it's by virtue of the absurd that Abraham believes that he'll get Isaac back even if that requires a miracle. Um, from the standpoint of faith, the reason that ends up in despair um, is, is too narrow a view of reality. It leaves out what's most important about the real, namely God, as a loving agent. Um, and so you get this relativity of uh, reason, uh, depending on uh, the standpoint from which you uh, look at it. Now, <clears throat> Kierkegaard designates this distinction as preliminary. Uh, Fear and Trembling is a strange book. It has four introductions. And, and this comes in the fourth of the four introductions and is explicitly labeled preliminary. In other words, the contrast that I've just tried to describe uh, is um, not what is at the heart of the book. What's at the heart of the book uh, comes in the three problems that come after the four introductions. And the first of those is famously or infamously labeled, is there a teleological suspension of the ethical? So what on earth is that all about? Here the contrast is between Abraham and the tragic hero, rather than the night of infinite resignation. And the tragic hero is Agamemnon, or Jephthah, or Brutus. Uh, three stories from um, three different uh, literary contexts. And in each of those cases, um, Agamemnon and Jephthah and Brutus did kill their child. A daughter in the case of Agamemnon. Uh, uh, is it a daughter or a son in the case of Jephthah? I think it's a daughter. Yeah. Uh, and a son in the case of Brutus. And what they have in common um, is that they live in a culture in which family values are very important. But the values of the larger community trump family values. And so in each of those three stories in different ways, um, uh, the needs of the community and the values of the community uh, point to a higher duty than the duty as a father to a son or a daughter. Um, and from Kierkegaard's point of view, that means they operate within the framework of the ethical. I'll spell that out more in just a moment. Whereas Abraham doesn't have anything of that sort. Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac is based on no social ethos, no society's need. Um, it comes to him and his culture and his society from outside, from a transcendent God. Um, and so it involves a suspension of the ethical. 
Um, he's very explicit about the fact that this is not an ab abolition of the ethical, but the uh, relativizing of the ethical. My ethical duties uh, uh, are, are real. They have a, a claim on me, but they aren't the highest claim. God has a higher claim. And so the second problem uh, poses the same issue in a slightly different way. Is there an absolute duty toward God? In which case, I have only a relative duty toward my society, my culture. Now, in the context of developing this, uh, Kierkegaard says that the ethical is the universal. And people are r remarkably stubborn in assuming that that means some ahistorical principle of right and wrong. Something like the way Plato's forms are supposed to function. Something like a principle of natural law is supposed to function. Something like Kant's categorical imperative, uh, the categorical imperative, uh, or something like the utilitarian principle that one should always act uh, so that either one's act or the rule by which one acts maximizes happiness or pleasure or the good or whatever version of utilitarianism you're working with. That's what is meant by the universal. That's not what Kierkegaard means by the universal, and he's very uh, explicit about it. He means by it what Hegel means by the universal. And uh, when Hegel talks about the universal, he has in mind not some abstract principle, but some concrete community. So um, Kierkegaard signif signifies to us the Hegelian context in which he's thinking in the following three ways. First of all, each of the three problems that make up the main context of the book start out by saying, well, if the universal is the highest, if the ethical as the universal is the highest, then Hegel is right, but Abraham is lost. A, a clear signal that the ethical as the universal is a Hegelian concept. Secondly, uh, Kierkegaard uses the Danish equivalent of the term that Hegel uses to talk about the ethical, uh, Zittlichkeit, uh, which is usually translated just ethical life, but in context clearly means the laws and customs of my people. The tragic heroes act in accordance with the laws and customs of their people. Those laws and customs say family responsibilities are important, but they can be trumped by your duty to the larger community. And so mothers send their sons off to war. Um, that's not a family value, but the family value has been trumped by the, the, the ethical commitment of the larger community that um, uh, the needs of the nation in times of war trump the desires of the family. Uh, and for each of the tragic heroes, something along that line uh, is uh, the case. The third indication that the ethical as the universal uh, is to be meant in the Hegelian sense, <laughs> is the most explicit of all. The universal is the nation, the state, 
society, the church, or the sect. Five different terms that Kierkegaard uses to designate the ethical universal. And that's why uh, it seems to me that the best translation of Zittlichkeit uh, is the laws and customs of my community. That can be a political community, that can be a cultural community, that can be a religious community, um, but it's a concrete human community, a particular human community. Um, and then the question is, are the norms of my particular community, even if that is a religious community, the highest criterion for my behavior, or is uh, a God who is not reducible to my nation, my state, my society, my church, or my sect, all of whom can come under the judgment of God, all of whom can be discovered to be um, uh, unreliable guides to the highest human life. And when, when I try to uh, enact for myself Kierkegaard's point here, um, I do it in the following way. I don't, I'm not usually in a situation of pledging allegiance to the flag, but when I am, I cross my fingers and I put my hand on my heart and I pledge allegiance to the flag with crossed fingers to remind myself that I have a higher allegiance than the nation and the, uh, the flag and the nation for which it stands. Uh, that's the point that uh, Kierkegaard uh, <clears throat> is trying to make. Um, Eleanor Stump uh, is one of my heroes. Um, but uh, not when it comes to reading Kierkegaard. She acknowledges that she's not a Kierkegaard scholar, but she claims that her reading of the Abraham story is Kierkegaard-like. She says, God's commandment does not put Abraham in a dilemma where ordinary morality conflicts with obedience to God. Rather, it constitutes a test of Abraham's character that he passes precisely by committing himself to the belief that morality and obedience to God are on the same side. Now that strikes me as a very un-Kierkegaardian reading of the story. It may be, in some sense, um, a good reading of, of those, the, the whole of the Abraham uh, story in Genesis, but Kierkegaard's point is just the opposite, it seems to me. Kierkegaard's point is that um, uh, ordinary morality, um, while it often purports to be the voice of universal reason, is in fact the laws and the customs of a particular human community. And uh, the particular human communities, um, which are the base of what she here calls, without sufficient analysis, ordinary morality, um, are uh, finite and fallen, just like human individuals are. And so, even when they are very good, in Abraham's case, Kierkegaard stipulates that the laws of, of his community forbade child sacrifice, um, so that God was going against the ethos, whether that's historically accurate, of course, uh, I, I don't know. I'm not sure that uh, any of us do. Child sacrifice was 
practiced in the ancient Near East, whether it was practiced among the kind of nomads that Abraham was, uh, I just don't um, purport to know. Um, but, but the point here is that uh, every human community um, is uh, just that, a human, all too human community, um, and therefore always liable to be trumped by the revealed word of God uh, in, in spite of its self-image as a very religious uh, community, as Kierkegaard's Denmark uh, did indeed um, <clears throat> see itself. And so in uh, a later book, Practice in Christianity, uh, Kierkegaard says, uh, <clears throat> uh, every individual ought to live in fear and trembling. He's referring back to his earlier book. Every human individual ought to live in fear and trembling before God. But every established order also ought to live in fear and trembling before God. Because fear and trembling signifies that there is a God. If there is, in principle, no possible gap between what I think is right and wrong, or what we think is right and wrong, then either I am God or we are God. And Kierkegaard is suggesting that just to the degree that any community thinks of itself that way, it is an idolatrous community, having deified its collective self um, and wandered away from true faith, and having done so precisely in the name of reason. Uh, I don't know that Nazi Germany deified itself in the name of reason. Uh, it had, had too, too much of a blood and guts sense of, of what its roots were and so forth. Um, but many um, human communities that do succumb to the tendency to absolutize themselves, that's that prideful use of reason that Luther was talking about, um, do so uh, precisely in the name of reason. Um, the culture, the, the academic intellectual culture of scientific naturalism uh, is an example of that. Um, it says, um, here we are, the community that does science, and as my teacher John Smith used to say, anything that my net doesn't catch isn't a fish. Um, that self-absolutizing of the scientific project, from Kierkegaard's point of view, and I should think from any authentically biblical point of view is, is idolatry, which is not to say that there's not a legitimate place for science, but that um, the scientific worldview isn't the, the sole truth about reality, and it has a relative uh, significance and value, not an absolute uh, <coughs> significance and value. Um, one of the... Um, <clears throat> most wonderful passages in all of Kierkegaard's writing also comes from that later book, Practice in Christianity, <clears throat> in which Kierkegaard stages a jury trial. He imagines Jesus coming on the scene and uh, making claims that are equivalent to claiming to be the Messiah, uh, the Son of God in, in, in that sense. 
probably not a, a Trinitarian sense, but um, somebody utterly unique in, in the purposes of God for the people of God. And so he stages this jury uh, trial with, with 10 members drawn from his contemporary Danish society and has them, he imagines Jesus having sort of wandered into their world. Uh, and they, they give their verdicts on whether Jesus could be the expected one. And when I summarize this, I capitalize expected one with an E and an O to highlight a certain relationship to, between that and the established order with an E and an O capitalized. So to me, the most interesting of the 10 jurors is the sixth one who happens to be a clergyman. He's the only clergy person um, on the jury. He says, it is, it is true that we all look forward to an expected one, but that it is God in person person who is to come and not the, is not the expectation of any rational person. And every religious person shudders at the blasphemy of which this person is guilty. That's almost a quotation from the gospel stories of uh, the, the, the rulers before whom Jesus was tried claiming that he was blaspheming uh, in the claims he made about himself. But it gets more interesting as this clergyman goes on. He uh, gives it a, a flavor and a verve that the, the gospel narratives lack. Therefore, he says, the authentic expected one will look entirely different, will come as the most glorious flowering and the highest unfolding of the established order. He will recognize the established order as the authority. He will summon all the clergy to a convention present to it its, his, his achievements together with his credentials, and then if in the balloting he has a majority, he will be accepted and hailed as the extraordinary that he is the expected one. One of the things that Kierkegaard never lacked was a sense of satire, and he had a very sharp knife that he drew out from time to time and poked people with it. That's one of, the, one of my favorites. But that, that's the point of fear and trembling. Um, whenever reason, whenever in the name of reason, some established order absolutizes itself and says, in effect, we are the people and wisdom will die with us. Our norms are the final norms, are the absolute norms. We are immune to critique. Lord, we thank thee that we are not like those terrorists. Lord, we thank thee that we are not like those communists. And there are many ways one can play that, that game. Uh, whenever that happens, something like what this satire uh, is talking about uh, is going on. Now, I, I conclude with um, uh, what, what may seem a strange comment. I've talked about the sense in which Kierkegaard is a Hegelian in recognizing the historical particularity of various worldviews that call themselves reason and challenging their claims to be the absolute authority. Um, Kierkegaard wrote Fear and Trembling in 1843 and um, he had written a dissertation in 1841. 
Um, do you know anybody else who wrote a dissertation in 1841 and then broke on the literary scene in 1843? No reason why you should. Marx. Karl Marx was, uh, in, in those senses, an exact contemporary. And I want to suggest that Kierkegaard is a Marxist in a peculiar sense. Marx introduced the notion of ideology. And by that, he didn't mean what today we mean by ideology. It's, we have a much looser sense of the term, whereby any semi-coherent theory about society and how it does work and how it ought to work is called an ideology. Um, <clears throat> but Marx um, had, had a more precise view uh, expressed uh, first in uh, uh, the, the manuscript that wasn't published until after he died and, and then in the Communist Manifesto. The ruling ideas of every epoch are the ideas of the ruling class. Um, ideas function ideologically for Marx. When they mirror the established order and in turn are, func uh, are used to legitimize or justify the established order. So the notion of ideology doesn't have anything to do with the content of ideas, but with their function. They become ideology when they function as the mirror of and the legitimizer of some established order. And Marx thought that the task of philosophy as critique was to expose ideology for what it was, the self-absolutizing of some social group, some power elite. He thought that that was especially the case with economic classes. Kierkegaard doesn't have that economic bias. Uh, but he has the same view that established orders, that, that um, power elites um, establish themselves um, by uh, adopting ideas which mirror the status quo and in that way serve to justify or to legitimize the status quo, or at least the stat their status quo, Maybe they're just clinging to it desperately in fear that it might be uh, uh, losing power. Um, but Kierkegaard, like Marx, it seems to me, um, is an ideology critique or an ideology critic. Uh, and his work is ideology critique. Um, in a book like Fear and Trembling, um, <clears throat> he calls attention um, with help from Hegel but anticipating Marx without knowing it, uh, to the ways in which human established orders uh, deify themselves, absolutize themselves, and in that way make themselves incompatible with biblical faith. And so in Philosophical Fragments, uh, <clears throat> a work that comes in between fear and trembling and practice in Christianity, he says, I hear those voices out there that say, Christian faith isn't reasonable. It's ridiculous. Uh, it doesn't conform to reason. And he says, it's exactly as you say. The surprising thing is that you think that's an objection. 
Christianity has been saying this since at least the time of Paul, and maybe even the time of Jesus. Uh, what calls itself reason um, is the prideful self-absolutizing, is all too often, the prideful self-absolutizing of some human uh, order. And when it calls attention to the fact that it's incompatible with Christian faith, it's only uh, echoing what Christian faith has said about itself, that it is uh, the wisdom of God, but not the wisdom of the world. That it's uh, not reducible to and, and in important ways incompatible with the wisdom of the world. And so uh, Kierkegaard talks about the acoustic illusion that comes when enlightenment rationality talks as if it was made a great discovery that Christianity uh, is not reasonable. Um, Kierkegaard is one who says, and, and what precisely is this reason that you are talking about? Um, just how universal is it? Uh, what is the neutral standpoint by which it justifies its claims to be the highest criterion of how we should think and how we should live? Um, those are the kinds of questions uh, that Kierkegaard wants to uh, leave us with. Um, th those aren't answers. They're, they're pinpricks in the self-confidence of uh, certain kinds of rationalism uh, that it takes itself to be more self-evident than uh, it's capable of being. So that's what I think is going on in Fear and Trembling, uh, and I hope you'll find it uh, useful to think about it. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.